Hello, my name is Brian Metlaga. I'm the Associate Director of Education for the Endourological Society, and I'd like to welcome you to this installment of the Endourology Soundbites podcast series sponsored by Richard Wolf. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Jody Antonelli from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And what we're going to spend the next 10 or 15 minutes talking about is essentially the metabolic evaluation of stone formers and then get an understanding of how someone who has tremendous experience in the field, Dr. Antonelli, performs this in her practice and manages her patients. And we'll work through over the time we have together and hopefully it'll, I think, give all of us a much better understanding of these care pathways, which oftentimes can be complex. So Dr. Antonelli, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast series. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I guess we'll begin with kind of just a very broad question. What is it about either a patient or their stone or the surgery that you did would prompt you to recommend a metabolic stone evaluation for a patient? The type of evaluation that I recommend depends on the risk level of the patient. Low-risk stone formers are first-time stone formers without a family history of kidney stones or without a personal history of medical comorbidities that predispose to stones like obesity, diabetes, GI disorders, gout, nephrocalcinosis. A high-risk stone former would be a stone former who's had recurrent either episodes or presents for the first time with multiple stones, or a first-time stone former with the metabolic comorbidities that I just mentioned. If a patient has a first-degree relative with a history of stones, or they present with their first stone in childhood, or they have a solitary kidney, then I'd also consider those people to be high-risk. And so that's, I think, a great place to start. And you bucketed the patients into two broad categories, the low risk and the high risk stone formers. And I know a lot of what we see clinically in many cases are these low risk patients who still want to have some understanding of their stone risk. How do you evaluate a low risk stone former? I do essentially what's considered a screening evaluation, and this is in line with the AUA guidelines on the medical management of stones, but the screening evaluation starts with a thorough history, and I think that's really important when you're evaluating a stone patient. You don't want to gloss over that. So looking at the past medical history, specifically paying attention for those comorbidities that I previously mentioned, looking at past surgical history, reviewing the medications that patients take, because oftentimes they're on a medication that's associated with stone formation, again, asking a thorough family history, and then also a thorough social history, including their dietary history. And then I either review, or if there isn't one available, I'll obtain a basic metabolic panel specifically to look at their creatinine, their serum calcium, and their serum potassium. And if a patient has either a frankly elevated serum calcium or a high normal value, then that would prompt me to get a parathyroid hormone level. I also look and see if they had a recent urinalysis or if they don't, I'll obtain one. Looking at pH, this could sometimes indicate a propensity to form stones if the pH is either very low or very high, very high being more often calcium phosphate or struvite, very low being uric acid. And then I check to see if the patients had a documented history of recurrent UTIs. If the patient has a stone analysis that's available, that can be helpful. Unfortunately, about 80% of the time, the stone's a calcium oxalate stone specifically. That's actually a little less helpful in terms of determining the cause. But in you know the chance that they have a less common type, such as uric acid or struvite, 
that can really kind of streamline the evaluation. And then I see if they have imaging and imaging can often lead you to knowing the stone type as well. If the stone isn't radio opaque on plain radiography, then it's more consistent with a uric acid stone. Or if you have a CT and the Hounsfield unit density is less than 500, especially if they have other risk factors for uric acid stones like obesity, then you know, you'd be more inclined to think that that's what's going on there. So if the patient is truly deemed low risk after that kind of cursory screening evaluation, then I don't necessarily go forward and I'll just offer general dietary recommendations. If the patient is deemed low risk from that evaluation, but is still very eager to know more, then I'd pursue a more complete evaluation with a 24-hour urine. And what if either the patient screens themselves into a high-risk category or for some other reason you've identified them as a high-risk stone former? How does the evaluation differ for those patients? I still do all of the components that I just described in the screening evaluation, but then in addition, I would get a 24-hour urine, which would then be considered a true metabolic evaluation. And there's no consensus in the literature as to whether you should just upfront do one 24-hour urine or two often I'm more inclined to wait to start medications until I see kind of a documented pattern of a consistent abnormality. So in those situations, sometimes if there's an abnormality on one collection, I'll get a second. If the patient has pretty significant risk factors that I suspect there will be an abnormality, then I'll often get two up front just to save time. So this is all in the category, if you will, or parameters of the initial evaluation. And then once you've done this initial evaluation with the screening, the laboratory studies, what's then your follow-up regimen for patients as they're in your practice and you're following them longitudinally? The AUA guidelines on medical management, they certainly recommend follow-up. They're very vague as to what that follow-up should consist of and how often it should be done. When I go through the evaluation, if I find abnormalities that require only dietary modifications, I usually bring the patient back for a repeat 24-hour urine at six months. If I find an abnormality where I recommend they start a medication, then I typically follow them a little more closely and I'll bring them back with a repeat 24-hour urine at three or four months. And certainly for those where I'm starting medication, I typically will do blood work, oftentimes a week or two after starting medication, but certainly I'll review recent blood work or get new blood work at that three or four month follow-up. And then I re-image stone patients typically every six to 12 months, depending on the aggressiveness of their formation previously. I typically get a KUB for that, unless the patient's a known uric acid stone former, then I'll get a renal ultrasound. And then switching gears a little bit to talk to some of the pathophysiologies that you can identify in the course of these evaluations. If we focus on some of them, for example, hypercalciuria, which is, you know, I'm sure not uncommon in your practice, what is your algorithm for how you manage patients who have that as a finding? The first thing I look at is urine creatinine. And so I just want to make sure that that hypercalciuria actually came from a collection that's adequate, that it's not, you know, an under collection or an over collection. So assuming that it's adequate, then the next place that my eye will go to is the urine sodium. If the urine sodium is elevated for every hundred points, you can lower urine sodium, urine calcium will go down by 50. So if the patient's urine sodium is quite elevated and their urine calcium is only mildly elevated, dietary restriction of sodium typically to like less than 2,000 milligrams a day is often enough to lower their urine calcium. 
I also check a patient's serum calcium, and typically people have a recent BMP. If they don't, I'll order one. If the serum calcium is frankly elevated, or even if it's high normal, then I will check simultaneously a serum parathyroid hormone level and a serum calcium. And if I have a suspicion that they can have low vitamin D or they're on vitamin D, I'll actually at the same time check a serum vitamin D as well, just so that I'll kind of have all the data I need with one lab draw. If those labs are normal, so there's no evidence of hypercalcemia and their PTH is normal, then I consider starting a thiazide in those people. And this is where, you know, if I only have one collection that shows hypercalciuria, I'm inclined to typically repeat it before I start them on a long-term medication. The other thing that I will do is I'll look at their medical history and specifically inquire whether they take calcium supplements. So sometimes they won't include that in their medication history. And specifically, if they take Tums, I've had patients over the years that it turns out they're just on a very high dose of calcium supplementation or Tums as the cause. And then if I start a thiazide, I also look at the medications because oftentimes patients are on a thiazide already for blood pressure or on a combination blood pressure pill that includes usually hydrochlorothiazide. So I want to be sure that they're not on one already. Oftentimes the hydrochlorothiazide doses that are prescribed for blood pressure are too low to actually affect urine calcium levels. So in those patients, I'll either increase the hydrochlorothiazide dose, or sometimes in those combination pills, I'll recommend they break up the combination pill. And instead of hydrochlorothiazide, I start them on indapamide or chlorthalidone, which tends to have better effect on lowering urine calcium when given as a daily dose. Hydrochlorothiazide tends to require BID dosing to really have a good effect on urine calcium. And then looking at, say, for example, hypocitraturia, how do you approach those patients? So for hypocitraturia, I typically would define that as a urine citrate less than 500. And those patients, first place I'll look in them is to see what their urine pH is, because often the two go hand in hand and patients with hypocitraturia will also have low urine pH. If they have, again, a consistent pattern of this on more than one collection, or they've tried dietary interventions, I'll prescribe medication to attempt to alkalinize the urine. The dietary interventions that I typically try first, though, are recommending that they try to maximize their fruit and vegetable intake, specifically trying to strive for five servings a day, and that they try to limit those foods that have a higher acid load, like meats and some dairy products. And if those interventions don't work, then I will recommend a medication to try to alkalinize the urine, usually potassium citrate, confirming that they have normal renal function. If they don't, then sodium bicarbonate is another choice that would alkalinize the urine and would be safe in a patient who has suboptimal renal function. This is incredibly valuable because these are conditions or states that are identified on the 24-hour study. And, and as you said, the AUA guidelines is a very robust document, but still it has some vagueness to it. So getting these insights are extremely valuable. Looking at other conditions to pick your brain a little bit more, Dr. Antonelli, what about hyperoxyluria? Do you have an algorithm or pathway for those patients? Yeah, in those patients, I think it's very important to get a very thorough medical history and dietary history. Medical history-wise, you know, you're looking for any kind of GI disorders or history of GI procedures, bowel resections, GI disorders such as Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, 
and then things like Roux and Y gastric bypasses, things that would affect absorption essentially of calcium and oxalate and lead to higher levels of oxalate in the urine. So anything where you have saponification of calcium within the intestinal lumen, the calcium isn't there to bind the oxalate. So that free oxalate is then more easily absorbed and excreted into the urine. So if patients have high levels of oxalate in the urine and they don't have any sort of bowel history, then I ask kind of more detailed dietary questions, seeing if there's particular foods that are high in oxalate that they maybe are eating too much of. Spinach is a big culprit, nuts of almost every variety. So typically if it's a dietary source, the oxalates, you know, not extremely high, usually like 50 or less with enteric sources, the oxalate levels tend to get a little bit higher. If you end up with oxalate levels over 80 on the 24-hour urine, then I also start to get concerned for the patient potentially have primary hyperoxaluria. That's a very, very rare diagnosis. So oftentimes it's an error with the 24-hour urine collection and not that, but at the very least, I will repeat that 24-hour urine in kind of short order in those patients. And if it consistently is over 80, then I'm more inclined to send that patient for a workup for a genetic cause for primary hyperoxaluria. And we spoke a little bit about stone type, and my experience is just like yours. The vast majority of them are calcium oxalate. But I guess one question is, do you perform workups differently for patients with different known stone types? For example, calcium or uric acid or struvite patients. Does the type of stone influence the workup that you do? I will say calcium oxalate stone formers are sort of more often your garden variety stone former and, you know, could be more often just due to low volume dehydration states or some dietary indiscretions. Patients who have a high amount of either brushite or hydroxyapatite, I worry more in those patients that there really is a true metabolic cause of their stone formation. So I'm much more inclined in those patients to strongly recommend that they absolutely do the 24-hour urine to get the full investigation to see if the cause can be determined. For uric acid stone formers, it really is almost completely driven by pH. And so I still do the 24-hour urine in, in those patients, but you often will have patients that it's just more difficult to get them to do the 24-hour urine collections. And in the uric acid patients, I mean, those are the ones that you actually, I think, can manage them a little bit more easily without the full 24-hour urine if you have to. Struvite patients, you could argue that the cause is infectious, and so maybe a 24-hour urine isn't warranted. I still will typically do a 24-hour urine at least once in those patients just to see if there are real outstanding abnormalities. Otherwise, it maybe should be corrected to prevent other types of stones in them in the future. And then asking just kind of a question about your practice in particular, what do you find as the most difficult metabolic abnormalities to manage? And which are the patients that you find just particularly challenging? I would say probably the two most challenging are distal renal tubular acidosis and struvite stones. For distal renal tubular acidosis, those patients often are very aggressive stone formers. They have nephrocalcinosis. They pass stones frequently. They often have large volume of stones. And the, the metabolic abnormality there, you know, it's hypocitraturia and it's high urine pH. And Dr. Preminger actually did several studies in the 1980s, but small series in his study in 1985 show that there was actually a benefit to giving potassium citrate to these patients. And so it seems kind of counterintuitive because we know potassium citrate will raise urine pH. But the thought is that the increase in citrate that you get and the correction of the acidosis, the benefit of that outweighs the potential negative of the rise in pH. 
I typically find though, when I put these patients on potassium citrate, their citrate goes up a very small amount and their pH tends to go up even higher. And so it's often a challenge to slow the stone formation in these patients. And like I said, unfortunately, they often are very aggressive stone formers. Struvite stones similarly are very difficult because often the underlying cause for their recurrent UTIs is something that isn't correctable. So these patients often have indwelling catheters or maybe have sedentary lifestyles due to quadriplegia or things like that. And so it's very difficult or impossible to correct the reasons why they have recurrent UTIs. The AUA guidelines state, you know, you could give AHA, acetohydroxymic acid, to attempt to inhibit the urease, but it has a pretty significant side effect profile. One of the biggest side effect concerns is causing a hypercoagulable state, which in a sedentary patient, as many of these patients are, I am afraid to start them on that. So I try to really just do everything to limit their potential for recurrent UTIs, oftentimes putting them on short courses of suppressive antibiotics, but that could sometimes lead to antibiotic resistance. So I think, you know, those patients, unfortunately, are a challenge. And then a portion of what we counsel our patients on in terms of stone risk reduction maneuvers really centers around dietary advice or dietary adjustments for the patient's Do you have any tips? Because I find personally, that's probably one of the most challenging parts of stone prevention counseling. I agree. I think probably one of the biggest pitfalls that providers fall into is giving the patients too much information at one time. Dr. Penniston at University of Wisconsin did a nice study in 2016, and she actually showed that patients' recall of dietary advice is highest when they're given three or less specific recommendations. So I think when you throw five or more, you know, or a long list of recommendations to a patient just verbally in a quick, you know, 10 or 15 minute appointment, the likelihood that they're going to really absorb, retain, and be able to implement that is very low. So I think probably the biggest piece of advice would be to stick with the three or less biggest problems and then to also not only tell them this in the visit, but provide them with something in writing that they could refer to when they leave there. And for those very fortunate urologists that have a multidisciplinary clinic that includes a dietitian, you know, with special training in kidney stones, that's obviously the ideal. But unfortunately, very few, if any of us have that luxury. And so I think that we are forced to kind of do the best we can with these short time periods that we have to talk about these things in a clinic appointment. And so I think, you know, oftentimes it's hard for the patient to translate what we tell them to really day-to-day real world advice. But I think if you try to limit your specific recommendations and then provide them with something in writing that they can leave with, that's probably the highest likelihood that they'll be able to implement these things in their own life. Dr. Antonelli, I just want to thank you for being a part of this podcast. I personally found it incredibly informative. This is really very valuable information that really isn't easily available in one place. You get a real-world understanding of how to manage our patients with metabolic stone disease. So I want to thank you for being a part of this podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. And of course, I'd like to thank Richard Wolf, who is the sponsor of this podcast series. And on behalf of the Endourology Society, I want to thank you all for listening. And I look forward to you joining us again for the next installment of the series. Mm-hmm.